Welcome to the Chronic Pain Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dina Chopolis, founder, head pain coach, and curator at Pain to Possibilities and the Change Pain Academy. To learn more about how the Change Pain Academy is radically changing the way we think about chronic pain, and to learn advanced self-care management techniques, visit us at paintopossibilities.com. That's pain, number two, possibilities.com. Or if you'd like to test your readiness to change the pain, you can do our quick quiz at paintopossibilities.com forward slash chronic pain quiz. In today's episode, this is a conversation we had during our Willow Tree Chronic Pain and Trauma Summit in 2023. I hope you enjoy. excited to introduce you to our esteemed guest, Kira Wackett. Kira is a licensed mental health therapist specializing in shame and anxiety. She is the owner of Adversity Rising, a company who equips people with the confidence and skills to write their own stories. Her work ranges from one-on-one coaching to corporate wellness packages with a focus on what she calls the anti-band-aid movement or resisting the quick fix in favor of doing the work necessary to make meaningful and sustainable change. The highlight of her work is her signature program, That Life AR, where she walks people through their through her five-step therapeutic process, which we'll get into, uh, she believes can combat any pain point that comes our way because we all deserve to live a life in which we can thrive. Well, we are going to be talking about shame as sort of as part of the lived experience with chronic pain and trauma. So Kira, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm, I always feel weird saying excited because I know these are hard <laughs> topics, but I do, I feel that vibration of just yeah. grateful for the opportunity to be a part of the conversation. So thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And a good point. I know I know none of us really want to talk about this, but at the same right. time, we're just, we are excited to get this message out simply because we know there's just not enough people getting this message. So again, that's why I really appreciate your time. So I am starting off kind of the same way with everyone. I would love to know our listeners to be able to hear what is your backstory and what got you to the point where you are now or where you are now? Yeah, I think I was kind of a I don't know, interested in how the way that that question sits differently, depending on the context of your life in any given moment. So there are times where I feel drawn to be like, let me tell you about the day I was born that I've now <laughs> created a memory around versus, you know, in my twenties. And, but I think to kind of summarize me as a person, me as a professional, I am a survivor of complex trauma, childhood trauma, kind of hitting a lot of those ACE scores. I am somebody that I think as a result of that became sort of the high performer, high functioning perfectionist. I was able to take on beyond everything. I was very much a parentified child. My mom, single mom, I'm an only child. She wasn't supposed to have children and and kind of the dynamic within that. And then unfortunately struggled with some undiagnosed mental health mm. disorders that led to some addiction issues and sort of the trauma unfolded from there. And in my life and sort of in my recovery process myself, I've struggled with an eating disorder, some PTSD, some anxiety, and a lot of different physical health ailments that 
were really hard for me to accept the conversation that they were, you know, that the, it's in your head sort yes. of idea. Yes. And I will say now being in the profession and having these conversations and really helping people understand what psychosomatic pain is, that I think a lot of it was in the delivery that felt right. dismissive versus oh, absolutely, you know, the, the validity of it. But I, you know, I, I remember there was a point where I was going to be getting my gallbladder out because it wasn't functioning. Turns out that was very much my body responding to trauma. There's, you know, IBS and GI things. There's a lot of other TMJ and like a lot of stuff that my body has gone through and continues to go through. And I would say now I have gotten myself in a position where I'm, as you said, a licensed therapist, I work with people with maybe some shared or overlapped experiences, but really just people that had a break in sort of natural trajectory and and development, whatever that trauma looked like for them and tried to bring the pieces back together the best they could. And a lot of the times there are rough edges, there are missing components, there's a loss of kind of awareness of even how to do that. So that's really now what I focus on with other people. And I think sort of create an appropriate degree of vigilance for myself, being aware that that's something I will struggle with for the rest of my life, given my own trauma history. Wow. Oh, wow. When it comes to chronic pain, you know, the 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 message for one is really... Yeah really not being told well, uh, hence why we're here. Um, but also just just such a lifelong learning process of pulling the pieces together, understanding how they really are connected and how, you know, you're having to learn as you go. I'm in my 50s and I am still finding out the pieces of my health and also my mom's health and my dad's mm-hmm. health are no longer with us, right? But you start to understand their picture as well as your picture just that little bit more. Right. So thank you for that. Now, in getting back to sort of what, when we introduced you, uh, you mentioned or the anti-Band-Aid movement, and I love yeah. that. Can you <laughs> expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. So I am clinically trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. So if anybody's ever done any CBT, they might kind of recognize the terms core beliefs and, and things like that. So when I explain this, that might be where it's coming from. If you haven't heard that, mm-hmm. a lot more popularized, I think more accepted talk. Now you hear the term limiting beliefs, but basically the idea is that we, when we're born, have a belief about ourselves and our place in this world Mm -hmm. for, you know, my mathematical calculation is 0.0003% of the population. It's I am worthy and good enough just by being me. Mm. However I am, whatever my identities are, however I show up, I deserve love and belonging. Mm. The rest of us developed the belief that we are only worthy and lovable if, or we are not worthy and lovable unless. Mm. And what that really did is created a system or a foundation where all of us started to chase a performance. This is what we're going to get into shame. So I'm excited to talk about this more, but this idea of basically the constant fear of being found out for not being good enough. And If you think about that mixed with, you know, I'm in the U.S., I know we have listeners to this all over the place, but whatever your cultural norms are, most cultures have some sort of focus on kind of whatever forward momentum is. And that could be in collectivistic cultures, kind of the good of the many and the community and moving forward in, you know, my experience growing up and kind of U.S. in general, this idea of output is everything, productivity, Mm -hmm. you got to be hustling, you got to be up and thinking about what you're going to do. Well, if we think about kind of the the notion of 
internal stress and internal tension. Well, if the belief is I'm not good enough mm-hmm. and I have to pretend like I am or perform as if I am, I have to make up for these deficiencies. So I'm going to chase that. Well, over time that creates the tension. It creates a buildup. And again, I'm not a geology person, but kind of the way I think about volcanoes forming and knowing a little bit about life sciences, the pressure will build up and it kind of pushes and it will burst through like a volcano and eruption. Mm. I think about a lot of treatment and recovery. So I work with people with eating disorders. That's kind of the primary specialty that I'm in. And then again, sort of trauma as an offshoot of that. Mm -hmm. The way I think about it is if the answer was just eat, then I wouldn't have a job and it would be so simple. And I think the Band-Aid movement is the equivalent of the just eat idea. Mm -hmm. Just take the pill, just get up, just get over it, just be better. It's the idea that you and your pain are an inconvenience to the forward momentum. We don't have the luxury of stopping long enough to hear what's going on with you. So you need to figure out how to catch up with the rest of the group. We can't slow the pace down. Right. Everybody else is running. So you either just stay behind and realize the things that you've been telling yourself your whole life that you're not good enough Mm -hmm. or figure out how to catch up. And so the anti-Band-Aid movement is saying we need to stop putting Band-Aids on internal wounds. We need to slow down enough at the corporate culture, at the individual level, at the the cultural norms as a whole. Mm -hmm. Stop putting band-aids on it. Allow us to slow down enough to say the system isn't working because all of us are chasing. All of us are breathless. We yes. need to find a different way. Oh, oh, incredible. Yes. The system, you know, the system can be so many things, right? I mean, and we we have many systems that are just not working as well as they right, could right. all their podcast, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but you mes- mentioned sort of simplicity, and this is going to sound a little bit like a silly question, but um what words would you use to describe the experience of shame? Because I feel like there might be many listeners who either uh, it will really truly resonate with or or yeah. are not identifying with that shame is actually what they're feeling. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people started to be turned on to the term as Brene Brown sort of came to the surface. That's like anybody that talks about shame thinks that she is sort of the the guidepost to look at. And she does this incredible research that I think has really moved the system forward. Mm-hmm. But we've been looking at shame in the context of, you know, therapy, therapeutic modalities, psychological research for years. And what we know is that shame is a universal experience. It's a mo- an emotion. It's a feeling that we all have unless you are born without the capacity to experience emotions. So, okay. you know, the 98% of us, 100% of us almost mm-hmm. feel shame. Mm-hmm. And it is the fear of not being good enough, of not belonging. Mm-hmm. And so when we go back to those core beliefs, it's the idea that you've already internalized. This is who I am. I am broken. I am the problem. So shame is kind of like the sleazy car salesman coming in to be like, oh, no, no, I have the answer. Mm. Here's my rule book. You follow, follow these rules, read through this manual. If you do this, it's going to be okay. Mm. And then if anybody's ever seen the movie Inside Out, the in a beautifully done Pixar movie that talks about emotions, I always go back. There's a, a moment where the fear emotion sees broccoli on pizza with the main character of the movie and panics because that is not supposed to happen. That's what shame is doing all day long. It's surveying the system right now. At some point in this conversation, my shame is going to come in. It's already done it a few times. Mm -hmm. You're talking too much. You're not being eloquent enough. People don't care to hear this thing. It's the background noise that's happening to say, these are all the threats to how you're going to be perceived in the world. And when we're not 
vigilant of it or aware of it, shame is the thing that's kind of the puppeteer for how we exist in our life. It's why we wore the clothes in middle school that everybody else wore to fit in or say, Hey, I actually hate country music. This is a very real personal example. (laughs) When I like jazz and hip hop and all my friends like country, but I don't want to say anything because I already feel like I am othered. Mm -hmm. I need to just fit in. Mm -hmm. So that's really the experience is you know, if we boil it down even simpler, it's any time that you feel like you have to change how you're showing up or hide a part of yourself to make sure that you are, you matter, you belong, you're a part of the group in some way, or you're not going to be found out or ostracized. Right. And so does that, is that really, does shame serve a purpose sort of on the grand scheme of things? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that people talk about and people argue it both ways. I am of the belief it doesn't serve us in any capacity because the ultimate tenet of it is the belief that you as a human are broken. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful example given to me in my training that talked about, you know, if you all kids go through a lying period, we've all done it as kids as a part of the developmental process. You're supposed to do it to understand Mm -hmm what that feels like. And there's a part of storytelling and, you know, expansion of your beliefs and all of that. But if you tell your kid, you're a liar, Ah. if they believe I'm a liar, it means there's something wrong with me. I, at my core, can't tell the truth. I am the problem. Instead of saying in this moment, the action is that you lied. Mm -hmm. And so this really starts to differentiate between shame and guilt. So when people are like, well, shame could be helpful. It's, you know, you feel bad because you're not living in line with values. That's not the point because it's not a value of, I have to like country music to be good enough. It's not a value to say that I have to be a size two to be good enough or that I have to have lighter skin or that I have to be able-bodied or that I can't experience pain because that makes me weak. That is the sense of you being broken. Guilt is the idea of something I did or didn't do or how I'm showing up in the world doesn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. I don't like that I lied. I don't like that I hurt somebody's feelings. I don't feel good about the fact that this is how I handled something. Mm -hmm. Guilt is incredibly powerful and valuable. I think shame, maybe, and maybe now this is the one thing I could say, maybe as we're talking about chronic pain and long-term recovery and thinking about shame resilience, I think when we're feeling shame, if we can get to a point of awareness of it, because we will feel it the rest of our life, it won't go anywhere. I do think we could see shame as maybe kind of a warning system, a yellow flag. And Mm -hmm. maybe in that case, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we could say it's, it's a benefit because we could start to recognize when shame gets louder, that's my cue that something's going on. So I think we could use it, but I don't think it in and of itself is helpful. Well, because it is such a powerful emotion and I think- like everything else, and and this is, again, like I've said this so many times, but I'm thankful I'm saying this, is that there's such a beautiful thread that is running through this summit, is that awareness is such a powerful piece of the whole equation. And awareness is also important when it comes to shame, because if we're not aware, we're feeling right. it, then how do we address it, right? And so right. I think that's, um, that's an important part. I'm, actually, that's been a big learning for me in the ripe old age of 50-something, getting diagnosed with ADHD, is that... Uh, Shame is a huge part of it as, as it is for the human experience. And so, yeah. Right. Um, okay. So, um, what is the impact of shame on how we view ourselves? Like, I know we've touched on it a little bit as far Mm -hmm. as sort of the emotional self not being good enough, but does it stretch beyond that and get into sort of the physical self as well? Or. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about how 
you know, again, if we go back to the Band-Aid movement idea, it's not only that people are trying to put a Band-Aid on our experiences, it's that we are doing it too. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, when we're growing up and we're told being angry is unhelpful, being sad, you're dramatic, you're being yes. whiny, you're complaining, get over it. Yeah. You know, you start to have your emotions be yeah. something that you temper and you try to put the Band-Aids on. But what we know is that the system of self is really about how we're thinking how we're feeling. And that includes our physical self and our relationship with our body and how we're acting in the world and connecting with other people. So really, I think about thoughts, feelings, actions, and connections as kind of the tenets that are infiltrated by shame if we're not careful. And what I think about with the body specifically, and I say this as someone in recovery from an eating disorder, again, having experienced different elements of pain as a result of different things in my life, one of the things that shame does, and depending on, again, cultural norms and sort of the aspects of your experience, is it's a, a disconnect with the physical self. Mm-hmm. So it's if we look at any aspect of our body, of our cultural norms around the body, it's you have to work even when you're tired. So you don't listen to your body's cue that you need sleep. You have to, you know what, you got to get this thing done. So you're going to skip your lunch and take that meeting. So you don't listen to your body when it's hungry. You are feeling sore. You're feeling tired, but gosh, everybody else is getting up and working on this project. So I should get up and do it too. And so there's this distrust that gets built up between the body and the self. We stop trusting our body because we see it as lazy in the way the hurdle to get over. It's just, you know, fat and gross and all the terms we tell our body. It's, you know, it doesn't function the way it should. We, I can't even do this anymore, especially if somebody is experiencing a day where maybe their pain is higher and it's the immediate self-loathing towards this part of self. And then on the flip side, the body doesn't trust us anymore either. Mm. You know, the body doesn't think, when I started my recovery process or when I work with people in recovery from the eating disorder and the instant, and mine was, I had most now, I think clinically the DSMs changed. So it would likely be anorexia nervosa, but it was an eating disorder, not otherwise specified. And a lot of my behaviors were around restriction oriented behaviors or purging oriented behaviors. When I was going into recovery, my body was just yo-yoing all over the place. It was, you know, quote unquote, getting fat. It wasn't doing this. I can't, I can't trust that my body can eat food and not become the shame that I'm afraid of becoming. Cause again, I'm already a failure everywhere else. My body can't be too. And what you see then is it's like, well, why would your body trust you that you're going to feed it regularly? Your body's going to shut down the instant it does it, or it's going to try to absorb everything like hibernation. Yeah. Why, when you've been telling yourself you can't sleep and you can't rest for weeks, for months, for years, because you've been telling yourself your pain isn't valid. The moment that it stops, your body is going to take you down because it does not trust right. that you're going to do it if it doesn't take you down right now and make it where you can't even function. Right. So I think that is, again, it's sort of a double edged sword of it. It's kind of this disconnect. And then I think tension that exists between the two aspects of self. But I see that as really being the problem with shame and the impact on our body. Yeah. And I guess, you know, living with that for long enough, the Mm long-term effects, um, you know, they probably likely become amplified and, and snowball unless they're addressed. Well, and thinking about too, sort of the normalized dysfunction, my mom and I talk about this all the time. You know, one of the things she does experience chronic pain and she's gone through a lot and her body's gone through a lot and she lives with bipolar disorder and now is medicated and able to have support for herself 
on a variety of scales and levels to manage that, but she's also got a lot of chronic pain issues, a lot of chronic health issues as a result of both substance use addiction issues, but also just things that she has genetically and she has trauma. So yeah. there's this sort of complex picture that things are always sort of coming out. And one of the things she and I talk about that I struggle with, and it took me a long time to, I don't think I was always kind to her when her body did need space and a break. But I think the other thing that was really hard is it felt like my mom would go, 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 and then she would crash. Right. And that happens to so many people all the time too. And it's the normalized dysfunction. Yes. You have to just, you have to push through it. You have to power through, take the pill, do the thing, get up, yeah. you know, go until your body yeah. literally is so burnt out. It can't get up anymore. And I think it's that cycle it's similar to sort of yo-yo dieting or anything else with the ups and downs that's what gets us because the shame is saying you know she's been working on this now she's here visiting us right now mm -hmm. and so we've had this beautiful opportunity to explore it and my daughter she's three we do at the table for every meal we either do something we're grateful for or proud of and when she asked my grandma or my mom her grandma today what she's proud of she said i'm proud of myself today oh. because i acknowledged I needed a break and I didn't wait until my body shut down. Oh. And it was this just beautiful moment. And I think that's the thing that we, we've normalized the dysfunction and the shame for so long. Yeah. The idea of saying that, of saying out loud, you don't have to think my pain is valid, yes. but it is. And yes. my body needs a break. And today my 100% looks different yes. today. My trauma story, you might think I should be over it right now because mm -hmm. it's happened 30 or 40, 50 years ago, or I can't even tell you everything that happened right. or you don't see it as trauma or, you know, whatever it is. Yep. And this is the reality of the chapter and the story that I'm in right now. And it deserves space. And I think that that is the key piece. Yeah. That's a strong empowerment piece for our listeners right there. I think the, um, the, the pacing, I mean, if there was a better word mm. for it, I would use it, but the pacing can be very difficult. And I think once we understand that shame is such a part of it, you know, we, yeah. we feel that need to push through. And you just stated that beautifully is that, you know, if we can at least start to address, become aware that shame is a part of the picture uh, and then, then have that courageous <laughs> exploration of why am I feeling that in the moment and how, just like your mom did, you know, she had that moment, yeah. felt really great. And I'm curious too, for you, like, do you, do you remember that awareness? Like when you got to the point where, you know, you sort of realized, oh, wow. Just like your mom did, you had that, she mm -hmm. had that moment where it's like, okay, I I'm aware all of a sudden, for some reason, I'm aware, whether it be the work you're doing or a conversation you had that I'm feeling this way or that mm -hmm. I am feeling shame. I think that it, I had a really interesting conversation with a nurse practitioner that I was seeing when I was in the midst of getting these, they're called HIDA scans. They look for your gall, higher gallbladders functioning. And I was meeting with surgeons again. I was being told at like 24, yes. your gallbladder doesn't work. You need to get it out. And then I had this conversation with this other doctor that worked in some sort of GI specialty. And he saw that I'd had a history of an eating disorder and immediately wrote it off as, well, you're just probably not eating. You've relapsed and you're not telling anyone, which also wasn't true. And he wasn't interested in hearing oh, anything. Boy. I felt like I'm not being taken seriously. And I'm also being told this very scary thing. And I don't know what the answer is. And like, I don't want my gallbladder out. So I, I'm not, this isn't fun for me. And I was talking to my nurse practitioner and she had this very wonderful way of saying hard things, but with such a lens of compassion. 
And she said, you know, one of the things I wonder if we need to consider is that you don't know how to stop. Mm-hmm. And we just started talking about that. And and it kind of got me into thinking. And I, again, I love therapy. I am a therapist. I think having somebody you can talk to is amazing. And I think if you can find the right match for you, whether it's a therapist, coach, a pastor, like anybody. Yes. It can be incredible. I didn't have that with the therapist that I was seeing. I didn't get that experience, but I got it with this primary care provider. And one of the things that, you know, she started to push me on was this idea of what are you afraid of is waiting for you when you stop? And I think that question Mm-hmm. was so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if that's how she articulated it now or if that's how I'm remembering it, but it was yeah. essentially this notion of I'm running from something. Mm-hmm. I, there's something I'm afraid of because I know where I'm going. Like, that's great. But mm-hmm. goals aren't enough to make us constantly be, I mean, jumping out of bed with like a panicked movement. Yeah. And I think that was the part where I started to realize how much fear I had about being perceived as anything other than the best in the room. And it wasn't, I, I think I'm better than you. It was that I don't think I'm deserving of being in the room unless I am seen as the best. That's great. Because I, I can't, I can't be normal and be okay. I've got too many things stacked against me. And that sort of started this downfall of admitting I didn't want to go to medical school. I didn't want to do these things that I had sold myself on since I was a kid. And I remember even at that point saying to my mom in the car, I said, I don't want people to think it's because I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, of course it's not that, Mm. but also why does that matter? Yeah. yeah. You know, and just this, and I think for all of us, it's this, I think a lot about radical acceptance, which is the ability to accept what is and is not in our control and really think about how much time we're spending trying to control immovable objects. And that's what people think about me and how I'm going to be perceived as an immovable object, how my body responded to trauma and the way that it's communicating with me with what it needs. That's an immovable object. I can run from it as much as I want, but it's still going to be there. So it's really trying to reframe that. I think for me, the moment I started doing that and I, I didn't ever have the experience of rejection once I did that. So I, I say that because I'm aware that I've had a certain degree of privilege. Some people will have a different experience, right? right. but the clients I've had that have had that different experience, mm-hmm. I think the healing that comes over time is the realization that those connections were never healthy mm-hmm. and those connections don't align with who they want to be and the values that they have. Right. Those connections were bred from shame. And so yeah. I know it's a roundabout answer to your question, but I think for me, it really did stem from that invitation to think about what what am I afraid of is going to catch me mm-hmm. in the back end? And what is that ultimately rooted to? And do I have the willingness or the capacity or, you know, whatever it might be yeah. to be willing to sit with it long enough to see that I might be okay if I moved through that? Right. And I think the, for the, our listeners, that invitation to explore and mm-hmm. to be curious, um, when you're open to that, it's amazing what can kind of unfold from there, right? And I think that was such mm-hmm. a great example mm-hmm. uh, for all of our listeners. So shame being a deep universal human experience, how can our listeners 
at least kind of dip their toe in the water? How can they start to assess perhaps what their shame is or how can they get started on understanding, not understanding, but working through or with shame? Yeah, I love that. I love that you said working through and with, because one of the things that I think happens is people, again, band-aid solution. Mm -hmm. How do I get away from it? And how do I never experience? I want, I need to solve it. I need to, and again, it's fear. Fear Mm -hmm. is helpful in some ways. It's not in this context in many of the capacities and it's, it's there. It's an immovable object. Like we said, I think the biggest thing, you know, again, and you've kind of brought this into the conversation by kind of calling out those key points. And so I think the first is to just be willing to admit that you have it Mm -hmm. and to see it as it's not a scalable thing as if you have it, there's something wrong with you and you're weak. It is literally experienced by every single person, regardless of how much power, how much money, how, what your different intersecting identities are, whether or not you've had trauma or have chronic pain, you have it. You have acted from it. You have experienced it. You have been stuck in it at some point. Mm -hmm. So I think first it's just saying, this is something I have And then I think it's, again, that accepting the invitation to go back and learn about maybe your core belief development, your stories, your experiences that really started to feed into this. And that's the curiosity, not just about sort of the systems and the cultural norms we talked about, but the family dynamics and those systems, the the peer dynamics, the different things that we experience that fed in us, oh, my mom or my dad or my grandma treats me differently when I do this, mm. oh, kids respond to me differently when I act this way. Mm. Oh, when I when I am not feeling great and I don't go out with my friends on the weekends and I say no, they stop inviting me. Mm-hmm. I better make sure I say yes, even if my body needs a break. And so you start to really look at where did that erosion of your authentic self get sort of displaced by and then replaced by the performance? Yes. And I think then really the the ultimate goal is to shift from external rooting and validation to internal rooting and validation. And there's, again, this kind of, I equate it to most change, most work. You're doing a ton of prep work. It's like jumping into a, an ice bath. Mm-hmm. You can do, you can get the support. You can do the deep breathing. You can walk through what it's going to be. You can do exposure therapy, all those types of things. At some point you're going to have to just jump. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's taking the time to really consider what would it be like to release the shame, to release the performance, to release the yeah. constant invitation to be worried about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then, and then it's picking a day that you're going to release it. And it might not be all your shame at once, but it might be saying, gosh, I'm no longer going to feel bad mm-hmm. that I need to be home by eight o'clock at night because my body needs more sleep. Yeah. And I'm going to give it that. And I'm not going to feel bad anymore when my friends push me and say, oh, you can't stay out a little bit longer. I'm going to release that one. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be done with that. And then it's, you build it and you keep finding the new ways and you take each spot as its own learning place. And I think kind of build the momentum, but it's coming back to this idea of the belief that you are broken is not accurate. It's there's no basis to it. It is all of us think that all of us think we're broken. And maybe the other thing to invite for people is when somebody else is pushing back, you know, when someone's like, God, you can't stay out, you can't do this. Oh, what about this? That's not usually about you, their judgment, their reflection, their distress that you need a break that you do. You know, I, if anyone hasn't read Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, I highly recommend you read it. It's just such a beautiful book that helps you articulate emotions. Mm -hmm. And one of the best 
sort of realizations I got was the renaming of what resentment is. Resentment isn't, gosh, I'm resenting the fact that you're, you know, you're not, you're doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I like, you should be doing this more. You should be helping me in the kitchen more. You should be the one to take on X, Y, and Z. It's a feeling of sadness, of longing that we can't do that ourselves. So when someone else breaks out of the system of shame, that's a threat to us because the system we know is that everybody's job is supposed to be to try to stay in the performance. When you break out, when you listen to your body, when you take your lunch break and you stop negotiating that that's time that other people can take, that messes with the system. I need you to not take your lunch break Mm. because I don't know how to exist without giving it up. And that, I think, realizing that people's reactions is usually not about you. We're all very ego-driven and not as egocentric, but ego is self-protection. Their reaction is not yours to own, nor is it about you. All right. I know you have a client coming up very soon. (laughs) I could talk to you for days and days. And then if people want to get a hold of you? My website. Okay. My website. I have a YouTube channel too. I post videos every week really focused on different tools, tips, and tricks. And so we can put links to both of those down in the show notes. But the thing I really like to tell people is if you are feeling a connection, you feel like you want to go deeper, but you don't know how, email me. Okay. I love that is the the best thing we can do to break away from shame is to get out of silence. And yeah. so I'm not going to do anything, but be open to the email. So I would, if anyone needs anything as questions, okay. send me an email. Here, thank you so, so much. Honestly. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you coming. Like we said earlier, you know, you put this out in the universe, you never know who's going to show up Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you showed up. So thank you so, so, so very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm just, again, so grateful to be a part of it and excited to hear everybody else's talks as well.